Hi, this is Dr. Julie Osborne, and welcome to my CBT podcast. It's great to have you with me again this week. I hope everybody's staying safe and being well and making decisions based on what's best for you, not how you feel. It's always a good way to start the day. So today I want to talk about a couple things. Um, One is to address again, trying to help someone that is struggling and is resistant to getting help. Um, I've had one of my old podcasts called How Can I Help? If you want to listen to that, talks more in depth. But I just wanted to share an email that I received uh, from a mom that I thought was um, really good and insightful. And I want to let you know my response back to her because you guys might be able to relate to this as well. And then after that, I want to talk about freedom from verbal abuse. So you may have someone in your life who is verbally abusive to you, and sometimes it comes across kind of in this mild way that we tend to minimize it. And I want to just address that with you for you to have more clarity and understand some ways on how to get better and work through the relationship, or if maybe if you need to even separate and move away from that person. So first, I want to talk about the email I received which talked about um, a mom with a daughter who um, has several issues with you know, anxiety and ADHD. And the mom obviously loves her very much and has taken her to therapy before, but the daughter's not really you know, ready and is resistant to it. And she gets frustrated. And then the daughter will use that as a reason sometimes when she's not getting things done. Um, kind of throw it back in her face that, yeah, I am depressed or I have, or I have anxiety type of thing. So the mom was emailing me and asking me, you know, for some help and what to do, because she understands like the daughter really does need to get some help. It really does affect your life, but she's not willing to do that. So I initially told her, you know, I'm going to keep it simple and just tell her to let it go. Meaning, you know, you cannot make anyone do therapy. You know, I see some teenagers and I have had situations where they literally will sit there and not talk, right? I mean, that's the power we all have is not to talk not to do something somebody wants us to do. Nobody can make you talk. Nobody can make you share your feelings. So then there's some other teenagers that have been phenomenal and they're so excited to be there and they're so happy to have support and they talk and we work through things and you know have a really good outcome. But to make your kid go to therapy, you know, you can try and see if maybe you can find a therapist they really connect with and maybe they'll open up to. But a lot of times that doesn't happen. And they're not ready. And a lot of times we need to let people have that space to have the natural consequences. So sadly, you know, maybe her daughter will need to get more depressed or more anxious or something will happen in her life that she'll be like, I can't do this anymore. And she may just have to give that space to the daughter to get there. And then she'll be ready and willing to take her. So my advice to the mom was, you know, if the daughter says something like, well, you know, I'm anxious, you know, I'm depressed. I would just respond by saying, yes, I know you are. And then walking away and giving her that space. You know, you can always remind her, we're here for you. If you ever want to get help, let us know. But the frustration of trying to make someone do something, especially when you love them and you know, like, oh, if they would just go get some help, things would be better. So it's really, it's a tough place to be. So I also suggested that the mom herself go get some therapy to talk to somebody and to get some tools on how to deal you know, with her daughter and maybe her own anxieties about seeing her kids struggle, right? That can create anxiety for yourself if you see your kids struggling and you feel like, you know, there's, you can only do so much. So 
those are just some suggestions. I want to just throw that out there because a lot of times, you know, many, I'd say every week I'm talking to somebody that says, oh, I wish my family member would go for therapy. I wish my friend would go for therapy. Or, you know, I sent, you know, your podcast to somebody, which is great. I'm grateful for that. And hopefully they're listening. But, you know, the, the goal is for them to get that person in for some help. And, you know, therapy is a really sensitive, vulnerable place and people need to be ready to go. And I know I've said this in my other podcast too, that I've had many people be like, oh, I wish I came, you know, 20 years ago. And I just say, you know, you weren't ready 20 years ago for whatever reason. When you're ready, you're ready. And that's when we go. You know, when we're sick and tired of being sick and tired, that's when we go. When something is really affecting our life, or maybe we're going to lose a job or lose a relationship, whatever it might be, whatever reason someone gives a therapy is their reason. And we can make suggestions. I'm not saying not to suggest to someone or to give them some resources, right? Or say maybe, hey, listen to this podcast, you know, you'll start understanding maybe what you're going through and that there's help for you. But then you have to give that person the respect and the space to go for themselves. And I think with teenagers, we tend to think, right, our thoughts is, you know, they don't know what's best for them. You know, they don't know that, you know, there's help out there. They don't know things can be better. And, you know, that's definitely a hot thought, right? Our thoughts that aren't 100% true. Because I've had lots of teenagers that have actually gone to their parents and said, can you please take me to somebody? I really need to talk to somebody. I really need help. So it's not always the parents that are taking the kids. A lot of times the kids are going to the parents. So it's not true that teenagers don't understand or don't know that there's help out there. You know, they may have some friends that are in therapy and they talk about it. So just rounding out this email is, you know, that was my advice. And just, you know, try to give her a lot of empathy. It's hard for anyone out there that has children that are struggling that aren't willing to get help yet. And, you know, are just more connected maybe to their social media. And we don't understand that so much and thinking that might not be good support. You know, we just don't know. It might not be good support. It might be good support. Other people they're connecting with. There's lots of blogs, teenagers, and lots of people read about depression, anxiety. So, you know, hopefully it's not all negative. And that, again, her daughter, because she's taken her to therapy so often, will know that the help is there when she's ready. So I just wanted to share that. I thought it was, you know, important enough to talk about again regarding this is just a story about a mom and a teenager. But most of us probably know somebody we think should be in therapy (laughs) and they're not going and we struggle. And that's where we have to come to accept that, you know, that's where they are. And maybe think about a time in our lives when we weren't willing, if we are in therapy or where we've gone to therapy, when we really maybe thought had stigma about it or weren't ready and other people wanted us to go. So, you know, just always be an empathy for other people and understand we're not in their shoes and we're not sure what they're going through exactly and for what reasons that they're not ready. So just some food for thought. So now I want to talk about my main topic for today, which is verbal abuse. And again, I thought it was a good podcast to do linking to my last one on codependency, because as I'm going to talk today, I'm going to bring up codependency again, because there is definitely an element of that when you're with somebody who's verbally abusive to you. So, you know, we want our home to be a happy place or at least a safe place for sure, right? So dealing daily with the outside world and the tensions, the pressures, surprises, especially with everything we're going through in our world today, can be really difficult. And usually you want your home to be a place to come back to, to feel safe, relaxed, and comfortable. You know, your sanctuary. It should be a place where you feel loved and accepted just for being yourself. 
And I know I'm, you know, sharing an ideal description of what home can be. But in truth, home is also the place where our personal conflicts are worked out, sometimes in destructive ways. And our internal conflicts may involve issues of anger, power, and control, all of which can lead to verbal abuse. So the verbally abusive household is usually not a happy place, of course, and in extreme conditions, it might not be a safe place. It's important to recognize verbal abuse when it occurs and then do something about it. Fortunately, there are effective ways of dealing with such situations and making the home a safe haven. And again, it's really important to, I just want to reiterate, is being able to recognize the verbal abuse. And I know over the years when I've worked with people and we've, you know, got into the relationships and really picked through the conversations that I've been able to point out verbal abuse when people really didn't even realize it because they were feeling so bad about themselves. So verbal abuse doesn't leave any physical scars, but the emotional wounds can be just as deep and recovery can be prolonged. And I've talked to a lot of people that have been physically and verbally abused, and I would say most of them tell me that the verbal abuse is worse because the physical abuse scars, those go away, but the verbal stuff really sticks and really they hold on to sometimes for their whole life. You know, on the surface, others may see the verbal abuser and the victim of the abuse as a happy couple, the nicest people. You might not have any idea, but behind the scenes, there exists a subtle pattern of manipulation, intimidation, unreasonable demands, sarcasm, and angry outbursts can all be ways of verbal abuse. And on the onset of the relationships, everything seems wonderful. The person who later becomes verbally abusive may shower the eventual victim with gifts and compliments and make that person feel like the most important person in the world. But gradually, the relationship deteriorates and the abuser's anger and need for control are projected onto the victim. The victim's blame for not being, quote, I'm saying good enough, and the relationship gradually will turn into an emotional roller coaster. When things seem to be going well, a fight just emerges unexpectedly. That's where people are like, what is going on? I thought everything was fine. You start to question yourself. The victim may adjust to this situation over time so that he or she is unaware of the extent of the abuse. Victims may come to see themselves as not good enough. They may feel that they're truly at fault. and If only they could change their behavior, the abuser's anger would stop. The abuser usually fails to take responsibility for creating the problem, and it's the partner who takes the blame. So these relationships then are characterized by denial, poor interpersonal boundaries, control and power issues, trust issues, and unresolved anger. So this is where, as I said, my last podcast was on codependence, and I want to talk about that and verbal abuse. So partners in a verbally abusive situation are usually involved in a codependent relationship, and neither partner may realize that verbal abuse exists, but they do know that something's wrong. Codependence exists when the partners in a relationship have grown up in dysfunctional families. And in these families, the needs of the parents are usually put before those of the children. There's great instability and the interpersonal boundaries are poor. So the children may be verbally battered so that they grow up with unresolved anger and a negative image of themselves. So people who grew up in this sort of household may find themselves in a verbally abusive relationship in adulthood because they don't know any different and it's like their norm. The abuser is charming at first and the victim is eager to please. Neither party is clear about his or her own boundaries, so the abuser feels justified in imposing anger on the victim, while the victim in turn tries to win love and approval, often by accepting blame and adjusting his or her reality to conform to what the abuser demands. The agenda for the victim is to be loved by taking care of the abuser. There's codependence for you. 
The agenda for the abuser is to control the victim into taking care of him or her, and both parties want to end the pain associated with the negative self-esteem. The victim seeks to win approval, which provides some semblance of self-esteem, right? If I'm approved, then that means I'm good versus I'm not good enough. And the abuser, who also suffers from damaged self-esteem, sees him or herself as the victim and uses power and control over others as a way to survive in what he or she sees as a threatening world. So you can see it's, you know, it's really complicated. <laughs> Every, everybody's got the same core issue, right? Poor self-esteem, poor boundaries. They don't feel good about themselves. They may have been abused as children. So now they find themselves together and they're just trying to go through this roller coaster. And it's really dysfunctional and really negative and very sad that everybody's suffering. Everybody's suffering. So let's talk about recognizing verbal abuse, right? That is the first step. And verbal abuse can almost always be seen as a control issue. Ironically, it is the abuser who sees him or herself as the victim. Thus, the abuser feels the need to control the partner in order to ally his or her own insecurities. So that's where you can see it's so complicated and the, the victim's not going to be able to point that out. And obviously, the abuser's not going to take responsibility. So the victim, hoping for closeness and approval, goes along with the control and may accept blame for causing the problems. In a sense, then, the roles become confused and the abuser is the victim and the victim is the abuser. The situation becomes murky and perpetuates the conditions which breed abuse. So to confront verbal abuse, we need to become aware of the conditions which lead to abuse. So I'm going to give you a bunch of examples. So the first one is blaming. So this is where the verbal abuser will accuse the partner of inciting trouble. So they may say, dear, let's talk about who will drive the kids to practice tomorrow. And then the abuser will say, you're always trying to plan out my life. Can you just give me a break once in a while? And again, this is where the abuser feels like the victim. Denial is another one. The abuser claims that the reality of the partner is invalid. So the victim will say, "Hun, remember when we were talking about taking a weekend just for ourselves? And the abuser will say, we never talked about that. You're making it up. So then the victim starts to question herself. Discounting is another. Similar to denial, discounting, trivializing the feelings of the partner. So, for example, you might say, um, Larry, I don't like you when we fight like this. And your partner will say, you're just too sensitive, always making problems when you could just leave well enough alone. So here you notice that the abuser retains the control, especially if the partner then goes along with these suggestions. Blocking discussions, another one. The abuser refuses to respond to a communication, thereby blocking resolution of a problem. So an example here might say, you might say, Joyce, let's go through the bills tonight and see how much we can put into savings this month. And the abuser will say, who asked your opinion? Get off my back, Buster. Countering. This is when the abuser sees the partner as the enemy and immediately counters anything the partner has to say without thinking it through. So someone might say, look at those lovely roses. And somebody might say, those aren't roses, those are tulips. So it's, the, you know, the name calling and say, you know, those, those are tulips, dummy. What are you talking about? The name calling is especially destructive and obvious uh, form of verbal abuse. Another one's withholding. So refusing to communicate and sharing thoughts and feelings can also be seen as a category of verbal abuse, especially because it damages the chances of achieving intimacy and empathy. Withholding occurs when the abuser distances him or herself and reveals as little as possible to the partner 
This is a way of keeping control and leaving the partner feeling frustrated and lonely. The partner may excuse this behavior by believing that the abuser is just a quiet person. This is the same as passive-aggressive behavior, which is so frustrating, right? Got a couple more ways to identify the verbal abuse. So another one is joking and verbal abuse. So the abuser claims that he or she was only joking and then blames the partner for not being able to take a joke. So the partner might say, did you really mean it when you said my mother couldn't come here for the holidays? And the abuser might say, you don't have a sense of humor. Just relax. And the last one here to identify is dominating. So commanding the partner to do something undermines the equality of a relationship and puts the abuser in the dominant position. You get dinner on the table right now, or you're going to my office party and I want you to dress in 10 minutes. So dominating, ordering, if not, if it doesn't happen, the verbal abuse starts and then the victim gets quiet and just goes along trying to keep the peace. So how do we change a verbally abusive relationship? That's a tough one. That's a tough one. There's the million dollar question, right? So because the partners in a verbally abusive relationship have usually adapted to their situations, as painful as this might be, this is where the intervention of therapy really probably needs to come in to help interpret the communication patterns objectively and empathetically. In therapy, the partners in a relationship may learn how dysfunctional families breed the codependence, as well as how negative self-esteem and lack of adaptive interpersonal boundaries can lead to a verbally abusive relationship. New and healthier ways of communicating can be learned, along with the issues of control, the need for equality in the relationship, and how to trust and respect one's partner. Learning assertiveness and refusing to participate in the cycle of abuse are crucial steps in coming to terms with the destructiveness of the verbally abusive relationship. Our homes can and should be happy, loving, and safe, like I said earlier. And we owe it to ourselves, to our partners, to confront the issues which prevent us from making trust and love essential ingredients in the recipes of our lives. The rewards of doing so are immeasurable. And something to think about, too, in your home, right, is I've talked before about breaking the pattern of abuse. I know I've just been talking about the relationship, but if you got kids in the home, you're going to continue this cycle of abuse because most likely people that are abused have been abused. And then your children are going to see the verbal abuse and then they're going to continue in a relationship. So if you're in this situation and, you know, it takes a lot of humility to go get help, especially if you're the abuser, you know, think about your kids that you don't want them to grow up the way you did and feel the pain you have and continue the abuse. So maybe that would be something that could encourage you to go get help. Or even if the victim, I know I mean, if you're the victim, you don't want your kids to be a victim as well, right? You don't want them to put up with bad relationships. You don't want them to learn how to be codependent because they're probably trying to keep peace in the house when they see these things happen. So I'm going to talk about the cycle abuse a little bit, maybe to understand it on that point of view. So the typical abusive relationship falls in a three-stage cycle. And the participants may not be aware of the cycle. So one of the main ways of coming to terms with verbal abuse in a relationship is to increase your awareness of the cycle so that you can respond more appropriately. So again, a lot of awareness, right? Knowing that it's even happening, understanding, and now understanding what the cycle is. So there's three, as I mentioned. The first one is the buildup of tension. So the verbal abuser during this stage becomes increasingly critical, detached, preoccupied, and contemptuous. The abuser becomes jealous and controlling. They may try to make the victim account for his or her actions and criticize how the victim dresses, talks, or cleans the house. The abuser usually places limits on the actions of the victim in an attempt to, you know, make them feel better about their own insecurities. It's during this stage also that the victim tries to accommodate the abuser by going overboard to please him or her in an attempt to keep the peace. 
The tension increases until the next stage of the cycle, the abuse stage, where it erupts. So you can kind of, you know, feel that tension. It's like, oh, I don't want to get there. He's going to explode. She's going to explode. What can I do? And then eventually the abuse stage. So a major fight erupts, and it's usually over a trivial incident or incident so minor that the participants may not even recall later what the fight was all about. I've talked to a lot of people who said, oh my God, we had a horrible fight over the weekend. I asked them what it was, and they can't even remember. There may be a great deal of yelling and threats, and sometimes the abuse can turn physical. One characteristic of growing up in a dysfunctional household is that people never learn to process their anger as a way of problem solving. In the verbally abusive household, this anger may erupt as uncontrolled rage. Words which are very damaging but which usually have no basis in reality are hurled at the victim. The victim is left confused, hurt, and in need of retreat from the painful interaction. And then the third one. This is the regret stage. So once things calm down, the victim feels distance from the abuser and the abuser feels remorseful. The abuser may promise never to lose control again and then makes an extraordinary effort to win back the approval of the victim. The more distant and self-protective the victim is from the abuser, the more the abuser becomes conciliatory. The abuser uses all of his or her charm to make things right again, and because he or she is in the controlling role, is usually successful. The honeymoon stage lasts until tension begins to build up again, and the cycle is repeated. Unfortunately, over time, the cycle can repeat itself more rapidly, and usually with greater intensity, with the abuser taking less and less or no responsibility for the pattern. So just to go over that again, it's the buildup of tension, the abuse stage, and then the regret stage. And this is just a vicious cycle. It happens over and over and over again. It's very sad, very sad for everybody. And the victim, you know, especially with the codependence, you have so much hope that, okay, maybe it's going to change. He seems or she seems remorseful. It won't happen anymore. But without getting help and having tools and recognizing and taking responsibility and all of these things, it's, it's not going to change. I think it's really difficult for uh, this type of dynamic to not have some kind of help, um, even at least a mediator, to have discussions to point out why it's verbally abusive. It's so manipulative that it can be turned around. Like I was saying that, you know, the victim thinks it's her or his fault and, you know, because she, he or she didn't do something right. And then the abuser can be like, yeah, see, that's what I was saying. So, you know, I really encourage you to get some help. And you know what? If your partner who is the abuser is not willing to get help, you know, you don't need to have that. You don't have to go together. Just show up, go by yourself, get some help, figure out what to do. See if you can make things work. You can be the person to get things started and the recovery to start. Maybe your partner will follow you along as you get going or you'll decide, you know, you want to assess if it's a safe place. And if it's not, you might have to make some changes. So, you know, don't be focused on getting your partner to go with you. You can show up on your own. So I'm just going to go over a little checklist. Um, As I said earlier, you know, verbal abuse is often difficult to recognize, mainly because living in such a relationship involves the denial, the rationalization, (laughs) and other distortions of reality. So if you feel like you may be the victim of verbal abuse, there's a little checkoff that I'm going to give you for situations that might apply to your relationship. And if you check off at least half of the following statements I'm going to share, you may want to seek the professional help I was talking about to start the process of learning to change the situation. So, does your partner frequently present a positive face to the world, but negative behaviors at home? Does your partner frequently seem to pick a fight just when you are getting closer? Does your partner frequently complain about how badly you treat him or her? Does your partner frequently ridicule you and then tell you it's a joke? Does your partner frequently threaten to leave or throw you out of the house? 
Does your partner drive you into a rage and then blame you for getting angry? Does your partner frequently manipulate you with lies? Does your partner frequently accuse you of having affairs? Does your partner frequently create double bind situations where you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't? Does your partner frequently use alcohol or drugs and things that get worse at those times? Does your partner frequently make you go out and socialize even when you don't want to? Does your partner frequently come alive during an argument while you just get drained? Does your partner consistently promise never to hurt you again? Does your partner frequently leave you stranded with no way to get home? Does your partner frequently twist your words and blame you for things you had no intention of saying? Does your partner frequently start arguments after you've been intimate with each other? Does your partner frequently criticize you and call you names? Does your partner frequently complain about the way you talk and dress? Does your partner frequently threaten to hurt you or leave? Does your partner frequently humiliate you privately or in public? And does your partner frequently ignore your feelings? If you recognize yourself as engaging in any form of abusive behavior towards your partner, you probably feel stuck in a vicious cycle. But there is a way out. And it begins with heightened self-awareness, a willingness to accept responsibility for behavior choices, and a sincere desire to change. And seek help at once, especially if you recognize that you're abusing somebody in this way. Things can change. I know it's easier to avoid, but the pain will continue and it'll only get worse and you don't want to have regrets. So I know it's a sensitive issue and it can be painful. I appreciate you listening to the podcast and hopefully taking to heart whether you're in this situation or you have a loved one to be able to share that with them and know that with therapy, especially with the cognitive therapy, again, we want to figure out, you know, what am I thinking, right? What are my core beliefs that are affecting my behavior towards this other person? Or why am I putting up with this based on my core beliefs and my negative thoughts that I have about myself and my, you know, cognitive distortions about rationalizing and denial and minimizing, you know, so many different things that's going on that's keeping you in the situation you're in. And it's a, it's a big picture. It's not easy. But again, going to get professional help is really the first step in getting the support you need to address these issues. So once again, thanks again for being with me today. Make decisions based on what's best for you, not how you feel. When you get into the place of why me, ask yourself what now, which really relates to verbal abuse, right? Instead of saying why me, what now? What now creates choices? for myself and I'm able to live my life and what am I going to do with my life to make it better then you can follow me on my website mycognitivebehavioraltherapy.com Facebook I'm at Dr. Julie Osborne LCSW my Instagram is mycbtpodcast as always please send in your questions your suggestions I really appreciate if you're on Apple Podcasts take the time to rate and review that really helps my podcast I, you know my intention as always is to get to many people as I can teaching them CBT tools to live a better and happier life so participating and being part of this is really fun and makes makes it really enjoyable to know that I'm reaching people and again I want to thank the person who I'm keeping confidential who sent me the last email that I talked about with your daughter, and I hope that was helpful as well today. So be well and stay safe until next week.
Whoa, Pole Productions. <laughs>